Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Welcome to the living room here at Cross Point. It's great to be together again. Last week we celebrated 10 years as a church. We celebrated what God had, uh, had done over 10 years and celebrated lives that have been changed and also gave vision and uh, encouragement about what is yet to happen, how God is going to continue to work. And if you missed that for some reason, I'd encourage you to watch the video online, listen to the audio of the message on our website. Good vision. And uh, if you call Crosspoint Your Church Home, I strongly encourage you to listen to it. Today we kick off a new 12-week series called First. We'll be in the New Testament book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible in front of you, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to get one at Guest Connections. Call that your own. We'd love to give those away and let that be our gift to you. And I'd encourage you throughout this series, whether you're students or adults, to bring your Bibles with you, to uh, open them up together, to be changed by God's Word as we, uh, as we get into this book. At Crosspoint, we, we value and are committed to teaching the authority of the Bible. It would be much easier for me, quite honestly, to prepare for a message if it was just full of 35 to 40 minutes of Dave's opinions and thoughts. But those don't change anybody's hearts. Those are not breathed out or inspired by God's Spirit. And so we want to continue to come back to, okay, what's, the, what's God's Word say about this? Not necessarily what our hearts or our backgrounds or relatives or friends say, but what's the Lord say? And not only take that in as knowledge for our heads, but then application for our hearts and for our lives. The word first is defined as coming before all other things in time or order. Things that are first impact everything else. Things that are first are put at the center of everything else. Uh, things that are first we, we set aside time for, we spend money on. If we want to get a, get a glimpse into what we are putting first in our lives, all we have to do is look at, look at our calendars, look at our banking statements. We will find what we're putting first. It doesn't take long to understand or realize that there are many things in our life that pull at us or clamor for that top spot, striving to be center of all that we do. Uh, Jobs, school, spouses, uh, children, friends, entertainment, pleasure, sin. I don't care if you're a believer in Jesus or not. You and I get this tension of priorities. We've all had seasons in our life where the jobs or the kids or the big project at work or whatever, all those things... We've had seasons where you and I might have walked out of those seasons and our priorities just felt jumbled up and they felt um, kind of mixed up a little bit in the midst of the chaos or the busyness or just kind of the daily grind of life. Jesus said, though, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33. So we are called to seek the Lord with everything we have, love him with everything that we are. And no doubt you've heard this phrase of putting Jesus first or putting him at the center of all that we do. And ultimately, all of Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, has Jesus at the center of it. Colossians is probably one of the most uh, Christ-centered, Christocentric is the big word, one of the most Jesus-centered books in the Bible. And this is the main reason I want us to study this book and get into it, because at the end of the day, we want Crosspoint, we want our lives, we want our relationships, we want Jesus at the center of everything. And this is even on our logo. If you look at our logo, that's the reason we have the cross at the middle of it because we want Jesus at the center of, we, we, at center of it. We want to see a, a community of people loving Jesus, being devoted to him, loving others and reflecting that love of Jesus to one another in the church family and then compelled to go and share that love and go and share that good news with the people around us. The second half of Colossians 1.18 says this, He, meaning Jesus, is the, is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. So the question we're going to continue to ask ourselves over the next few months, is Jesus first in everything in our life? Is he first in our work? Is he first in our home? What about in our mission or in our community we have with one another? What about in the midst of suffering? 
Is Jesus first in our past? Is he first in our future? What about the teaching of a church? Is he first in that? And the book of Colossians will lead us well into that conversation. Colossians is only four chapters long, so we're going to take this slow, and I'm okay with that. A couple weeks ago, I had uh, coffee with a local pastor that I'm friends with, and he was encouraging me to read the Bible slowly. Sometimes in our fast-paced lives, we want to crank through three or four chapters a day because we've got to get through the New Testament in 90 days. We've got to get through the Bible in, in, in 90 days. We've got to get through, and, and we want to check it off like a to-do list. And I'm not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with reading through Scripture at a significant, you know, at a significant pace each day. But there's also something to be said about just allowing God's Word to, to, to marinate on our hearts, to go about it slowly, reading just maybe even a couple verses and allowing those verses to bear weight on our minds, bear weight on our hearts throughout our days. And so I pray we'll do that during this series. The book of Colossians, some context and background as we get into this. It was a letter written by Paul to the church of Colossae. Uh, Paul was a church planter, a missionary, and God inspired him to write much of the New Testament. Paul had actually never visited this town. He was not the one who planted and started this church. The church planter was named Epaphras, and we'll look at him here in just a little bit. This letter was written about 62 AD, around 30 years after the first church had begun in the book of Acts, following the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Paul wrote this letter about the same time that he wrote the letter of Philemon, and Paul is probably writing this letter from a Roman prison when, when he wrote it. And we'll also see that Timothy played some role in writing this letter as well. The town of Colossae was not as important as some other towns around it, uh, but it was, it was diverse. The majority of the people were Gentiles, and yet there were also Jews there as well. So this is not a city dominated by one type of person, one demographic, one belief system. Lots of diversity. And one reason Paul is writing the, this letter to the church is reminding the believers of some non-negotiables or core tenets of their faith. There was some sort of false or incorrect teaching that was taking place. So in this letter, Paul is, is taking, the, taking the idea that the best defense is a good offense, and so he's going to be encouraging them to hold tightly to what they were taught and received in the first place. He's saying, don't go chasing after the false stuff, but hold true to the gospel. Hold, stand firm in who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's promised to do in the future. One issue that was occurring in such a diverse city uh, with lots of beliefs and ideas what's, uh, is what's called syncretism. So in many ways, Paul is going to address this throughout the letter. We briefly talked about syncretism in our series called Soul Detox earlier this year. Syncretism uh, dilutes the gospel for the sake of relevance. Instead of Jesus being the way and the truth and the life, he becomes a way to heaven, uh, and, and, but there are other ways. In some ways, it's kind of the boiling pot of humanity. So the Colossians are saying, yes, Jesus is our main man, and we believe him, we love him, but my next-door neighbor is kind of a, is a Jewish mystic, and so I'm going to take some of what he's talking about, and I'm going to incorporate that into my faith. And, you know, the guy down the street does some animal worship, and, you know, it's all worship, so, but I'm going to incorporate that into my life. And while that might sound silly, this is what you and I are tempted to do all the time, blending a little bit of Christianity with a little bit of other religions or philosophy and, and then call that our faith stew. But what's happened is we make this stew, we make this... We make this concoction and Jesus is no longer first. The word of God is no longer first. They're put at the same level as things such as, well, I, I really like this self-help book over here that I got on Amazon or I really like what my friend is saying over here. I really like with the, the direction of culture. That just seems to make sense to me. And, and we put that all on the same level as God's inspired inherent word and Jesus, the son of God. 
When I was a kid uh, and growing up, I'd go to basketball camps over the summer, and we'd make what was called a suicide with all the fountain pop. All right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you don't. I'll enlighten you if you do not. Um, but you, you, took your, you took your glass and you, you just kind of ran it down the fountain soda thing. You, you put a little Pepsi and Sprite and Cherry Pepsi and Mountain Dew and Fanta and Barks and Diet something or other, whatever was on there, all right? It made all one big drink, and, and frankly, it was nasty. I mean, at the time, I think, I don't know, in my head, I concocted it that it was good, but it is nasty looking back on it. And um, I don't know why we did it. Uh, maybe, I'm not sure. All right, but I th- I, maybe we thought that we could actually improve the pop on its, like, but, like 23 flavors of Dr. Pepper wasn't beautiful on its own, or the sweet nectar of Mountain Dew wasn't just glorious by itself. We had to somehow improve it, all right? In the same way, I don't know why we want to take just a little bit of the gospel, the true life-changing gospel, and mix it with anything else. Besides, maybe that we see others do it, and well, I guess this is just what others do, or we think somehow that Jesus is not enough. We think we somehow can improve on Jesus. And this is the beautiful thing about the Bible, is that there are themes, uh, the themes that were occurring when these letters, when these books were penned, are the same themes that are occurring in our life, which is incredible because the world has, has, has changed since 62 AD, has it not? I mean, we have Chipotle now, right? And we have Freaky Fast Delivery at Jimmy John's, and we have the Internet and the World Wide Web, and we have I-everythings, and the world has completely changed, but there's one thing that has not changed, one thing that has not and never will, and that's the human heart. The human heart hasn't changed. human heart is still sick and beyond cure. It's still broken and proud because of our sin. The human heart is still born longing for something greater, something grander. So our sin wants to try to fill that hole with all sorts of things when the only answer, the only antidote to the brokenness of our heart is the restoration found in Jesus alone. If you're not a follower of Jesus here, you're well aware of this stew pot of spirituality that kind of sits in the midst of culture. The people around you are never short of opinions and thoughts, right? And so in my heart, in our heart as a church, is that for you, to, as you hear the word preached, as you get into the Bible, as you're seeking out, okay, who is Jesus, that you would find that he is the way and the truth and the life. We believe that God who created you is actively at work, drawing you to himself, wooing your heart, calling you and others to put him first, to, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness to repent from your sin, to receive his incredible forgiveness, be lavished in his love, and then follow him as leader and Lord of your life to understand that he's the hero that saved you and has now come to give you abundant and full life. In the book of Colossians, we're going to see over and over God's word reminding us that Jesus is sufficient for all our needs. We're going to see Jesus elevated and lifted up, that he is supreme, that he is central to all we are and do that he must be first. And if he's not first, if he's not our greatest priority, then we are falling into some sort of uh, false teaching, false way of life that isn't the gospel. And today I want to look at the first eight verses of Colossians 1. The major theme of these eight verses is thanksgiving. No, not the day we celebrate in November, but the attitude of the heart that we are to choose continually in our lives. 
Does anybody struggle with thanksgiving or choosing thankfulness? There are moments where I sound like a stinking Debbie Downer, right? I mean, my wife attested to this in the first service. I mean, there's, there's nothing going right, and this is broken, and this, is, this needs to be fixed, and that attitude of my heart is so ugly and so sinful. It doesn't reflect the power of the gospel at all. I mean, can you relate to this? You're walking through some season in your life, and there might be a, it may be, maybe it's a massive trial, or maybe it's kind of a hangnail type of thing, but you're walking through this, and you're like, choosing thankfulness? Yeah, I'll choose that when this is over, but not in the midst of this. Where you find your heart bent or focused on the critical, like this glass is half empty, and it's a, the water's evaporating, and there's got to be a leak somewhere, and you're just, you're just angry about it. Instead of celebrating the goodness of our God, in his work that he has done, we're bent toward what he hasn't done and the work that he has yet to do. In many ways, our hearts have this tendency to reflect that of an Israelite that says, I, I know you helped me cross the Red Sea and I know you saved my life and I know you fed me. I know you, you, you gave me new life and new purpose. But what have you done for me lately? It's ugly, isn't it? It's sinful. And it doesn't reflect the gospel at all. Or maybe this shows up in your heart and if, if you're a parent or in your job or in your ministry here. You rarely express thankfulness to those around you. Or maybe you do on the outside, but internally you're angry and bitter. Or maybe, uh, maybe this shows up in parenting. You're, you're bent toward pointing out where your child or your children continue to fall short. Well, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, and this wrong, and this wrong, and instead of celebrating God's goodness in their life and how he is working and how he is transforming. A critical spirit is not a fruit of the spirit, BTW. It's not. You can look in Galatians 5. You won't find critical in the listing of the nine characteristics describing the fruit of the spirit. If you can relate to any of that personally or maybe someone in your home is that way or sitting next to you and If they are sitting next to you, don't point at them, don't elbow them. If you feel like the Holy Spirit needs some help, you can touch their knee and just say this is for you or something like that. But just trust the Holy Spirit to work in their life and work in your heart as well. So here in Colossians, Paul will be addressing this area of thankfulness as well as as all sorts of other truth. And the one thing that I pray we'll see is that when Jesus is first, it leads to a heart that is thankful. Thanksgiving naturally flows from a heart that chooses to put Jesus first, seeks first his kingdom. So we're going to read a little bit, and then we'll talk a little bit, and we'll go back and forth through these eight verses. I encourage you to underline, circle, make little notes in your Bible on what the Lord encourages you in. Be open to the Holy Spirit's voice speaking to you because we're going to cover all sorts of different topics in just these eight verses, not just thankfulness. So be open to the Spirit's work. Colossians 1.1 starts off, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul hasn't met anyone in Colossae before, so he's giving some background as to why they should even listen to him in the first place. An apostle of Christ Jesus, meaning I've been called by Jesus to be his messenger, to represent him and proclaim him to the world. Paul is an apostle for Jesus, not because he woke up one day and said, today I'm going to be a messenger for Christ. It wasn't that. He was called to this role by the will of God. And reading how Paul gets saved in in Acts 9, there's no other way to describe it. If you're new to the story of Paul and, and his background, I encourage you to read Acts 9 this week and understand how God saved him and who Paul was before Christ 
and then it gives you a better understanding of as you read the book of Colossians. In the beginning of this letter, we also see that Timothy's identified as an author as well. Some suggest that Timothy might have been the secretary for Paul's words. We're not quite sure. Either way, we're getting a glimpse into the relationship and partnership between Paul and Timothy in the pastoring and leading and building up of church. Um, Church leadership should never be about one human person. If it is, something's wrong. This is why the New Testament says a church should be led by a team, a group of elders who come under the authority of the chief shepherd, who come under the authority of the one person, the God-man, that the church should always be about. It's not about the man that stands on the stage. It's about the man who died and rose again. At the end of the day, that's what the church should always be about. That's who's leading the church as our chief shepherd. Verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, He's addressing the brothers and sisters, the the believers that call this church their home church. He's saying, church, I want you to listen to these words that I'm about to share. He wants to remind them that they're all members of the same family of God, that because of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, we've been adopted into the family of God. God is no longer just creator and judge, but now he's father. Now he's dad, and we're no longer enemies with one another, but we've been joined together like siblings, and as a result... We should adopt the attitudes and actions necessary to maintain the unity of the family. So with that in mind, let let me ask us this. Are you in the midst of a conflict with another sibling in the family of God? Let's just be honest for a minute. Are you upset, frustrated, hurt, bitter, angry with another brother or sister in the family? If you happen to be a parent here and you have more than one child, you deal with conflict, right? Every other day, every day, every like three times a day, right? And you serve as the one who helps bring some restoration. You serve as the parent who says, who helps your children walk through the process of identifying their own sin, asking forgiveness and reconciling and restoring that relationship. What was once broken, you're, you're trying to mend because you want your children to love one another. You want them to grow in that commandment. And so that same heart or desire you you have as a parent, if you are one, that same heart or desire is one that our Father in Heaven has as well. Sin always breeds division, separation, isolation. It has ever since the garden, ever since Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is when the blame game started. Instead of people owning their own sin, it became, well, she gave me this, well, the serpent said this, and it became someone else's fault. And people never owned their own sin. It's a result of the fall. But when Jesus is first, the gospel's intent is always reconciliation. Jesus came not only to reconcile us back to the Father, but to one another. So we need to stop letting our sin bring division among us in the family of God. We need to repent from where we've wronged someone. We need to repent from the bitterness. And we need to turn from the apathy that we have in trying to pursue restoration. Because sometimes that, that if, if we're honest, that kind of re- reveals itself in our heart, right? We say, yeah, I mean, we're not like fist fighting, so we're just going to let that go. There's still something going on in your heart, isn't it? And so we need to turn from that apathy that says, I don't really want to do anything with that. Because the Holy Spirit's trying to do something in us. Bringing about a family of God that's unified under one man. So instead, we engage in the beautiful, awkward mess of relationships. We engage with abundant grace that says, here's where I was wrong. 
And I'm going to be more focused on the plank in my own eye than the speck in yours. And so putting Jesus first means that our pride is not first. Jesus first in the family of God leads to a family of God that is thankful that Jesus is greater than the hurt that the sin caused. Now, notice the phrase, in Christ, that Paul uses there in verse 2. This little phrase shows up a lot in the New Testament, over 75 different times. To be in Christ means you belong to Him. You're now part of God's kingdom, God's family, and that kingdom and family is eternal and protected and guarded by our great God. Because we're in Christ, it means there are the entire orientation or focus of our lives is on the one who we are in. So we're in Christ and no longer in our sin. We're in Christ and no longer of the world. We're in Christ and no longer put our hope in the things of this world. We're in Christ and, no, and now put our hope in the one who rose again and, and died for us. We're in Christ and now set apart and made holy. All those little, little times that in Christ shows up in the New Testament, there are these beautiful promises Promises that when we remember them and reflect on them and pause enough to consider them, we can't help but be thankful. In verse 2 there, Paul refers to the believers in the church as faithful. Now, Paul typically didn't address his readers as faithful. He would often often say uh, holy or saints, but he would not say faithful. And I think Paul chooses this word to remind us of our need to continue in our devotion to the good news message that we once heard that we were taught. See, the Christian life is not simply about a one-time decision or one-time commitment, one-time repenting or turning, whatever you want to call it. It's not just about a one-time decision and then I go back to live how I've always lived. Instead, it's a one-time decision marked by a lifetime of decision of following Jesus daily, moment by moment. It's marked by a lifelong growth in Christ. If we are the same, if we've walked with the Lord, so to speak, for 10 years, and we're the exact same we, we were 10 years ago, something's wrong. I don't think we really know Jesus if that's the case. Because knowing Jesus, we're becoming like our teacher. Not perfection, but progress. Week in, week out, year by year. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So we maintain and grow in being faithful in our love and devotion to, to Jesus, not out of our own strength, but out of the grace of God. The grace of God drives us. It fuels us because grace means that our status, our position in Christ is ultimately dependent upon God's own unmerited love and the work he's done on our behalf. It's by grace you have been saved and it's by grace you continue to be saved. At no point in there do our works begin to earn God's love or affection for us. Rather, we want to do good works. We want to honor Jesus because of the grace we have been given. It's not out to earn or obtain God's love. It's already been shown through Jesus. So because of that, now I'm going to live my life to honor him because I've been shown such incredible, amazing grace. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul wants at the outset of this letter to anchor the person of Christ firmly to God the Father. As supreme as Jesus is in uh, creation and salvation and redemption, His identity and work cannot be understood apart from his relationship with God the Father. Paul's reminding the people, now remember, Jesus was not simply a a man. He wasn't simply a a good teacher. He was the God-man. He was the Son of God. And as a result, he has authority in our lives. He is the Messiah. He demands to be first in our life. Notice the object of Paul's thankfulness. It's not actually the Colossians. 
It's God. He says, we always thank God because God is the one doing the work. God is giving us the grace we so desperately need. This is why the Christian life is never about us, but it's about Him. This is why Scripture is about Him and not about us. Why a thankful heart is, is grown and developed when Jesus is first. Because then it's not about our good efforts, but it's about the one ultimately who is behind those good efforts. Our God is the object or the target of our worship and our thanksgiving. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Verses 4 and 5 explain why Paul thanks God for the Colossian church. And it's because they're displaying these three big virtues that are talked about all through Scripture, three big virtues of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. Faith, love, and hope. Faith comes first because it's the means by which God's grace is given to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please God. And their faith is not in anything or anyone else but Jesus. Jesus. It's in Jesus. We often misplace uh, the anchor of our faith and put it in things such as other people or our past. Well, this is why, how I grew up or this is our upbringing. I live in a small town. I, I grew up in, in church. I, all these different things that we anchor our faith in. But true biblical faith is not a combination. It's not blended with anything else. It's in one thing, Jesus. Faith in Jesus, first and central to our lives, elevated above, any, above anything else. This is why our vision statement starts with being devoted to Jesus. You can love other people. You can go and do good works in this world. But if you're missing faith in Jesus, being devoted to Him, you're missing the most important part and the only thing that matters in the end. Paul then mentions the Colossians' love for all the saints. He's thanking God that the believers aren't living with themselves at the center, but others. They're loving God's people. They're loving the brothers and sisters in the family of God. Yeah, the idea here that Paul's talking about is that the people of Colossae, any believer that kind of crosses their path, they're loving. They're saying, man, well, welcome. You're, we're so glad you're a part of this family. I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago, and they were sharing about how they'd moved to another state, and they joined a church, and they'd got involved. And even after a couple years of this church, they've been told literally by some people in the body, well, you're not really one of us. Not really a part of this. Just because they were newer to the state and newer to the church. That's that's a bunch of garbage, is it not? Listen, if you just walked into Cross Point today, maybe you walked in months ago, or if you've been here before we even had Sunday services, you're not here by accident. We're so glad you're here. And we're asking you to jump in and be a part of community, be a part of serving, be a part of what God is doing here something bigger than ourselves. And if you are newer and you haven't yet taken Discover Crosspoint, get involved. It starts tonight. You're welcome to come. It's an opportunity for you to get to know who we are, why we're doing what we're doing, and how you can be a part. And if this is a good fit for you, and I would encourage you to uh, get involved. Details should be in your program. Loving one another in the family of God is the part of our vision which says that we are dedicated to one another. And as your pastor, one of the most encouraging things, one of the most um, things that drives me to, to pray with thankfulness is seeing the body of Christ be the body of Christ, seeing God's people love on God's people, to see God's people pray for one another, meet one another's needs, to serve one another in ministry. It's beautiful when we choose to put 
others before us and to put Jesus first and pursue humility in Christ. Faith, love, and then in verse 5, he mentions hope because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith and love rest upon the solid footing of hope in Jesus. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is confident expectation. God said it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. God said he's going to provide, so he's going to provide. God said he's going to come through, so he's going to come through. It's confident expectation. So just like we do today, these, these Colossians were faced with, uh, faced with teaching or thought that led them to wonder, is Jesus enough? And we're faced with the same kind of thing today. Is Jesus enough to supply and meet all our needs? Is Jesus enough for salvation or does it have to be salvation plus something else? Or does it have to be Jesus plus something else to equal salvation? Just like the Colossians need to be reminded, we do as well, that our current experience of faith and love rests on the solid foundation of what God has committed to do for believers in the future, that the life of a believer is secure. And so when I blow it and I blow it, when I, when I blow it and, I, and I, I totally miss the mark on someday, when I don't love Jesus like I do, like, like I should, or I don't love other people like Jesus, or I don't reflect him, when, I'm, when I totally miss the mark, I don't go to bed worrying that I've been kicked out of the family, that my salvation is not secure. Because my salvation's never been about me anyways. It's always been about Him and what He has done. It's always been about His grace and who I am in Christ. Now, that truth does not then lead me to be flippant or careless about my sin. Well, I, I, Jesus got that. And just kind of keep walking. No, 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 no. I know Jesus took that. And He bore that. And so as a result... I want to live my life in a manner worthy of Him. Not for my own glory, but for His. Our hope is laid up in heaven, meaning this hope is not running away or leaking out, but it's stored up for the believer, the follower of Jesus. The idea behind the Greek here is that it's put away for safekeeping. It's been sealed up by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. And that seal of our hope is not broken until we see Jesus face to face. This is good news. Putting that truth first leads to a heart that can't help but be thankful. That even in the midst of the ups and downs, you got some ups and downs? I do sometimes. You got some seasons of kind of waiting or doubt or loss. Even in those seasons of the mountaintop and the valley, all of it. Our, our faith and love rests securely on the hope that is kept safe for us in heaven. We thank God, verse 4, since we heard, heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. He's reminding the Colossians, you've heard this gospel message before. You, you received this when Epaphras came back and began preaching and planted this church. Paul knows he's not the first person to share the good news with them. They've heard it before, just like many of us. We've heard it before. I know I'm not the first person to tell you that there's a God, and He is holy, and He is perfect, and He is beautiful, and He is creator. And we've naturally sinned and rebelled against Him and said, no, no, I don't want to do it your way, God. I want to do it my way. And as a result, we stand separated from Him. But God pursues us. This holy, perfect, beautiful God pursues us through sending His Son to dwell with us, to come as the rescuer, to come as the hero, 
And now we respond out of, uh, we respond to that truth. We respond to the good news of who Jesus is, what he came to do. We respond out of faith and repentance. For some of you here, um, or maybe you're listening on the podcast, you've heard that gospel message before. And for whatever reason, you've rejected it. But I believe God is calling you to respond to it today, to give your life to Jesus, to begin walking in obedience to him. I remember being at a concert about a year uh, before I got saved. And at this concert, I heard the good news message presented. And I remember telling God, no. No, I'm not doing that. I I get it now, but no, I'm not going to respond to that. I'm not going to receive you and I'm going to, Continue to, I wouldn't have said this, but I, I'm going to continue to reject you. But that's what I was saying by my answer of no. That's a scary place to be. To reject God's incredible display of love through the death of his own son. And basically say, no, I don't need a savior. No, I don't want to experience your love and forgiveness. I'm good by myself. Because that's what we're doing. We're rejecting his love. Maybe that's you. You've been telling God no for years. Listen to me. Today could be a different day. Today can be a different day. Today God wants to step into your life and save you, give you a new purpose, to lavish upon you his forgiveness and his love, to adopt you into the family of God. Don't reject that, but receive it. Paul calls the gospel the word of truth, meaning the idea of reliability and authenticity. This is not a man-made internet, internet prank fake story. This is the story that changes lives. And if you find yourself hung up on wondering if, if God is, is, is real, if, if the gospel is true, if the word of God is true, I would encourage you in two things. One is read the word of God. Read the book of John. Get to know who Jesus is. And just pray with an open heart saying, Lord, reveal yourself to me. God, reveal yourself to me. I don't know if I buy into you, but reveal yourself to me. So I'd encourage you to read the Word of God. That's first. Secondly, uh, in high school, I was skeptical. I just had questions, and maybe you can relate to that. Uh, I just felt like things didn't add up or whatever. And so I just had this heart of skepticism. And so if that's you, I'd just encourage you in in a few different books that would be great resources for you you as you read the Word of God and as you seek a God who is living and active and you're asking Him to reveal Himself to you. Those books, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, uh, Evidence That Demands a, Ber- a Verdict by Josh McDowell, uh, a reason, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, all great resources. Don't, don't replace the Word of God with those. But if, you, if you're getting hung up on your mind, if, if your mind is, is rejecting this truth, then submit your mind to, to God and say, God, I mean, he's, a, he's a supernatural God. And it's a scary prayer to pray maybe for you, but... I'd encourage you to pray it anyways. God, reveal yourself to me and be open to what he has to say. This gospel, this reliable, authentic word of truth, verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So here we see two pictures of truth. One is that the truth of who God is, who we are, what Jesus has done, how we are to respond to that truth, how we are called to live then, the gospel message is bringing about change in the Colossians. It's bringing about change in our own hearts. It's impacting us. The gospel message came like it always does. It spreads 
and we heard it, we received it, we understood the grace of God, and our life is eternally and forever changed. And the second truth we look at here is that not only is it changing us, but it's changing people all over the world. It's bearing fruit all over the world. It's increasing. And that was the intent of the good news ever since the beginning of Genesis. It's always intended to go worldwide. Genesis 12 We see the Lord come to Abram and he's basically saying, I know the world's fractured. I know it's broken. I know sin has played a part, but I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to, I'm going to send a redeemer, a hero. And he says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God is making this promise that one day a Messiah will come. One day a rescuer will come and all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. And then you fast forward to the New Testament and the angel announces the birth of Jesus this way. He says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will, be, uh, that, that will cause great joy for all the people. Good news for all the people, all the world. The invitation to follow Jesus is there for all who would repent and believe. God's promise of a Messiah has come. And then at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he commissions his disciples, he commissions you and I to go to the ends of the earth, to go local, to go global, to reach every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every person must hear this good news. And this is the mission that we are caught up in, Crosspoint. This is why our vision statement doesn't stop at being devoted to Jesus and dedicated to one another. There are plenty of churches that leave it at that. But now, but that's not biblical. It has to come full circle to be biblical. This is why we are driven to reach people, to go to the ends of the earth. This is why missions work is so vital. This is why it's vital for you and I to live out our faith the other six days of the week. This is why it's vital that we continue to give more and more money to God's work in missions. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is, the fa- he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has, made known t- and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, the direction turns from talking about the message the Colossians heard to now the messenger they heard it from, Epaphras. It's likely that, uh, that he became a Christian during one of Paul's missionary journeys. Not too much is known about him. More than likely, he was from Colossae. So he, so he hears the good news. He hears the gospel Paul had shared. And then he gets saved. And then he took it back to his hometown, the people that he knew, the people he'd grown up with. So for you who have been changed by Jesus... Who are you taking it back to? Who are you taking back to in your home, in your school, in your workplace? Who are you sharing and telling and inviting and welcoming and loving? Who are you pursuing in your life for the glory of God? Again, in Scripture, we see the gospel moves and spreads through relationships. Epaphras brings the truth back, shares the good news, lives are changed, a church is formed, but that church understands that its mission doesn't stop in Colossae, but its mission goes worldwide. Epaphras is referred to as a beloved fellow servant. The idea behind servant here is actually slave-like. In other words, the the believer of Jesus is, is also a slave for Jesus. As a result, their total dependence and dedication is to their Lord Jesus. Jesus is their master. Now, when we hear slave, it conjures up all sorts of wrongs and injustices that we've had in the history of our country. But in this case, in this case, Jesus is our master. And he's a good master. The good shepherd. 
who cares for his sheep and protects his sheep, the master who laid down his life so that we could find life. He's the master who has come to give us abundant and full life. He's the master who has overcome our spiritual enemy. He's the master who's the source of joy and life and salvation. He is infinitely good to us. And as a result, we are compelled to give, our, to give him our everything, every moment, every relationship, every part of our lives, everything. So in the framework of, in the context of thankfulness, Paul thanks God for so much in just these eight verses. Thankfulness is a choice. We choose this. We choose to put Jesus first and elevate him as supreme in all that we do. When Jesus is first, it leads to a heart that is thankful because then our thankfulness is anchored in who Jesus is, what he's done, what he will do, and who we are in Christ. All things that are not based on circumstances or the weather or the things around us or what's going on in our day that day, but rather truth that is immovable and solid and firm. For the follower of Jesus, a heart and life, a heart and life should be marked by thanksgiving. And believers should be the most thankful people on the planet when Jesus is first, when the gospel's first. But if we're honest, sometimes believers can be the most dismal and unthankful and ungrateful people. And we see that in Scripture, right? And we see that in our own hearts. But as believers, we should be over-the-top thankful for what He has done for us and what He promises to do for us in the future and who we are in Christ, what our identity is in Him. And so with that in mind, um, we're going to have just a couple minutes for you to pray at your seat quietly. Uh, If you're sitting next to a spouse or uh, maybe your child or something, I encourage you to hold hands, put your arm around them, and just pray together. And and just pray like Paul here of thank, thank you, God, for, thank you, God, for, and just express some thanksgiving to God, and then I'll close up in prayer afterwards. Thank you, God, that through Jesus we are adopted into a new family. I pray that you give us unity in the family. Thank you, God, that because of Jesus that you are Heavenly Father. Thank you, God, that you are forever faithful to us and help us to reflect that same faithfulness to one another. Thank you, God, for the promises we have in Christ. Thank you, God, for the faith that you give us and the love that you help us to show one another. 
Thank you, God, for the hope of heaven and how it's secure. Thank you, God, for the truth of the gospel, how it's changing our lives and how it's bearing fruit and changing lives around this world. Remind us of your global mission. Thank you, God, for the people who've shared the good news with us over our life. Remind us to share that good news with the people around us now. Thank you, God, for how you never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit, and thank you, God, for our identity being securely in you. For those here who don't know you, I pray that you would work in a, in a supernatural way to reveal your, your truth to them. Whether it's in a conversation, whether it's in the Word of God, whether it's just in a Holy Spirit type of moment, I pray that uh, you would bring salvation and you would bring growth in all of our lives to become more and more like you. I thank you for your incredible, unfailing, never quitting, never stopping, never giving up kind of love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I encourage you to uh, meet somebody new after the service. If you still need a community group, uh, listing or at guest connections or talk to me and I'll try to connect you to one. God bless. Have a good week.